You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. even I got the bright idea of remodeling a 100-year-old house in Louisville. It was a ton of work, but by the end of it, right before we sold it, we ended up having a pretty nice place to live. A project like that will force you to learn things about plumbing that you wish you didn't know. Knowing that I had become intimately acquainted with all things toilet, a good friend of mine who was not known for being handy, came to me just so excited. Tommy, you're going to be so proud of me. My toilet was leaking at the base onto my floor and I fixed it all by myself. And I was like, great. Well, tell me how you did it. And he said, I went down to the hardware store and I got me a tube of caulk and I caulked all around the base to make sure no water came out. Gil Roebuck right now is cringing on Facebook. You know anything about toilets, if you've got water leaking out of the base, it means it's not going into the pipe where you want it to go, and you're not fixing your problem, you're just redirecting water onto your, under your floor to where it's going to rot your bathroom. My buddy didn't fix his leak. This morning, we're going to read about an even bigger mess. The symptoms of the problem are going to be very easy to see, but like my buddy's toilet, I think that the real problem is much less obvious, but way more dangerous. Open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when you saw that she had conceived, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do with her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak. If he would speak to expose our sin and 
who expose a Savior, lives can be changed this morning. Real progress can be made this morning. You are the vine. I'm just a branch. We're just branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. I pray that you would work with power to reveal the power of your spirit to change us through your word. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice four things in this text. And the first thing I want you to notice is a trying situation. Look at verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Verse 1 sets the stage for the story that follows. Notice we have a problem in verse 1. Sarah has not had any children. I want you to notice that there's some things at work to make this problem even worse. First, this has been going on a long time. We don't know how long Abram and Sarah have been married, but we do know that she has been childless for their whole marriage. And we know that, as we see in down in verse 3, that this has been going on for a long time, for 10 years since they've been in the land. The first thing that we learn about Sarah way back in Genesis chapter 11 is in verse 30, Sarah was barren. She has no child. Which gives the impression that this is not just something that is, is going on in Sarah's life, but that her childlessness defined her. This is who she was. Which brings us to the second complicating factor, and that is that Abram has been given a particular promise. Look up at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. There's another thing. Not, not being able to have children is a, a big deal, in, even in our culture. But it was a huge deal in ancient cultures. And you can see this, if you just, just reading through the Old Testament, notice how much attention is given to the temptation for God's people to follow after fertility gods. As we read through the book of Genesis, we're going to see that people who don't have children are willing to go to desperate means in order to leave their mark on the earth. Look at verse 2. So Sarah said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. That's drastic. But the Hebrew text draws out her motive even more clearly than, than you have to translate it into English. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. It literally reads, perhaps I will be built from her. Sarah wants more than a baby to love. 
Sarah wants a name. Sarah wants significance. Sarah wants to leave something on the earth after she's gone. And I don't think it's, it's reasonable for us to imagine that Sarah wants in on this promise that God has just made to Abram. All of this is working together <clears throat> to make Sarah anxious. She's growing impatient. And look at verse 1. The solution to her problem is right there under her nose. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. This is a good place for us to pause and to say that in in this world, we need lots of discernment. Because when you hear that knock at the door and you look out the peephole, is that opportunity out there? Or is that temptation? Next, I want you to notice with me a zealous wife. In verse 2, Sarah takes action. So Sarah said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. We need to notice first who Sarah blames for her predicament. We'll talk more about that in a second. Notice who Sarah is working against. The Lord has prevented me. From bearing children. So now I'm going to come up with a solution. And look at her plan. I'm old. I'm barren. But I have this perfectly good maid. Listen, Abram. I want you to marry her. And then she can have kids for me. And, And at first glance, this looks totally bizarre. But what we have here is the first recorded surrogate mother. Here's a question we need to ask. Is it wrong for Sarah to desire a baby? Is it wrong for Sarah to want to be part of the promises that God has made to her husband? Is it wrong for Sarah to want to leave a legacy on the earth? What's the answer? No. None of those desires wrong but it is wrong to be willing to go around God in order to get them it's no shock that an overly zealous wife can cause a lot of problems but it gets even worse when you add to the mix a passive husband look at the end of verse 2 and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah Let me ask you this. What do you want Abram to say? No way. You you want him to say, Sarah, you've lost your mind. Or maybe you want him to be a, a little bit more sensitive. Listen, Sarah, honey, I know that you've longed for a child for a long time. I know we've been here. I know that I have seen your heart break over and over and over again. This is not the way to go about it. Let's remember, we belong to the Lord. And let's think about what he said. One man, one woman, that become one flesh. I know you want a baby. This is not the way to do it. 
But look at what Abram does instead. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. You notice in the text who's doing all the talking? What does Abram do in this story? Well, first, let's, let's, let's notice who's taking all the action. Look at, look at verse 2. Sarah's plan. Sarah says to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Look at verse 3. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Look at verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despising her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Look at the end of verse 6. So Sarah treated her harshly. Hence, she fled from her presence. Contrast that with Abram's action in the story. In verse 2, he listened. In verse 4, he did what his wife told him to do. Abram only speaks one time at the very end of verse 6. And I want you to notice his strong words of courage and wisdom and leadership. Behold. Your maid is in your power. Do with her what is good in your sight. Translated, I don't care about her. You do whatever you want to with her. I don't care. Let me speak to men. I want to remind you what James says. This this is a mirror that we need to hold up to our face. This is not just the relating of a story. The Holy Spirit through Moses is making an appeal. Let's hold this mirror up to our face. Do you see yourself in this mirror? Do you see how pathetic this is? Even in the church, is it not true that we joke about men being henpecked? We joke about who wears the pants in the family. We, we laugh when, when somebody says, when mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's all funny, but we can relate. But this is an ungodly way of running a home. Brothers and sisters, if we take, if we take Jesus Christ seriously, then we have to take marriage seriously. We have to take our marriages seriously. Because the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5 says that from the very beginning, what God is doing is He's putting on display the relationship between Jesus and His church. When is the last time you saw Jesus cowardly obeying the church? If we're on much of the problem in the modern church is that the people in the church are getting their cues from the culture and then going to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, you need to modernize or we're going to lose relevancy here. We got to do something, Jesus, about this whole gender role thing. Jesus, if we want to reach this culture, we got to become a whole lot more woke. No, Jesus loves his church sacrificially he bleeds to make the church his he loves her and so he leads her and he protects her and he instructs her and even corrects her 
What does his church do? We, she, thankfully, joyfully submits to her Lord. What do you think Abram wants? What do you think is driving Abram in verse 2? I don't think this has anything to do with Abram wanting Hagar. We already know that Sarah is beautiful. She's wanted children for 10 years. She's not being cold to him. It seems clear from verse 6, he could care less about Hagar. What do you think he wants? What's that? He wants Sarah to be happy. You could say, well, I think what he wants is he wants the inheritance that God is promising. But what does he want in this story? I think it's obvious. He wants his wife to be happy. He wants peace in his house. And so we ask the same question. Is it wrong for Abram to want to please his wife? Is it wrong for Abram to want a happy wife? Is it wrong for him to want peace in his home? And the answer is, no. But it is wrong for him to go around God in order to get it. So we have a trying situation, a jealous, a zealous wife, a passive husband. You put all that together in a pot and you stir it up and you end up with a big, fat, upside-down mess. Take a look. Look at verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. I want you to notice that Sarah's plan worked. Quote, unquote, worked. Verse 4, she conceived. We need to notice that as the story unfolds, she gets more than she bargained for. In verses 4 through 6, Sarah is not putting on a baby shower and calling all her friends to celebrate with this new kid that's been born. No, instead we see hatred, blame shifting, and abuse. Look at verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw she had conceived... Her mistress was despised in her sight. The the text leaves it up for us to figure out why Hagar turns on Sarah. Perhaps she loves this baby that is now growing inside of her. And she absolutely despises Sarah for planning to taking taking that baby and raising it as her own. Perhaps she thought of herself as better than Sarah because she was now Abram's wife and she was the one able to conceive for him a child. Whatever the case, the picture here in this text is very vivid. The mistress we see in verse 4. The mistress, the, the, the mighty one, often this word is translated the queen, is literally belittled, demoted. The, the, the point that Moses is trying to make is everything is being turned upside down. The queen is belittled. We also see blame shifting. The blaming streak that Sarah started in verse 2 didn't just end with the Lord. It continues in verse 5 with great force where she turns on Abram and says, this is all your fault. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. I don't know about, when I read this text, I'm like, where did verse 5 come from? That's not what I expected. It's upside down. Because everybody in this room will say, what are you talking about, Sarah? This is your idea. He, he followed your instructions to a T, and you're just getting what you wanted. It's upside down. Sadly, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. But Sarah said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her parents. I don't, I don't think that this is mere verbal abuse. This word translated there, treated her harshly, is translated oppressed in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 13. Hagar is the closest thing. Though we could go and do a profile on everybody's sin. that just multiplies everybody else's sin. But Hagar is the closest thing we have in this text to an innocent party. She gets punished by the one who dreamed up the whole scheme to begin with. And this baby that Sarah so desperately wanted is driven away. Everything's upside down. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a step back from this story. I want us to see what we got. We have a promise from God that's unfulfilled. We've got a very zealous wife. We have a passive husband. And you put all that together and we have this upside down mess of jealousy, blame shifting and abuse. And It's tempting to think of these problems in this text and in our lives. These overbearing women, passive men, modern reproductive technologies, jealousy, blaming others for our mistakes. But I think if we focus here, we're just putting caulk around the toilet. I think what we need to do is we need to, we need to look a little bit deeper. See if this summarizes what's, what's happening in this text. What we really have going on is doubt. Doubting the promises of God. And as time goes on, that doubt led to desperation. And that desperation led to disobedience. And then that disobedience led to disaster. Yeah, that's fair. It's very important for us to see this. Sarah wanted something so badly. And again, notice it's a good desire. But she doubted that God would give it. And so she went around God. And she took matters into her own hands. That's the problem. And let's just remember that Sarah's not the only guilty party here. Abram is ultimately responsible. He wants peace in his home. It's not wrong. But he's, but he's willing to go around God. He takes the matter into his own hands in order to get it. Let's just be reminded this is not an isolated story. I'm going to try to move quickly here. But we've seen something very similar already. It's amazing. I'll leave it for you to go back and look at all the, all the ties between this story and what we saw in Genesis chapter 12. There's a famine in the land. Abram decides to flee to Egypt. Oh, but they'll kill me down there and they'll take my wife. And so Sarah, I want you to lie to them. Tell them you're my sister. So Sarah gets taken into, into Pharaoh's harem. What's the result? The result's a big mess. I, I, don't, I don't know, but you know, is it possible that that experience opened up the door for this experience happening here with Sarah being willing for... Abram to marry somebody else. I don't know. But we do have connection. We see even Hagar came from Egypt. We see doubt that led to desperation. That led to disobedience. That led to disaster. But there's another story that we've already studied. That has even more parallels. Let's think back to Genesis chapter 3. 
Satan comes to Eve. And what does he tempt her with? You want to be like God. Don't you want to be wise? Those good desires? That's what we prayed for today, isn't it? Lord, give us your wisdom. Lord, make us like Christ. It's a good desire. So similar to Sarah. She wanted significance. She wanted to be like God. She wanted wisdom. And so what she do? The answer in Genesis 3 verse 6 is that she took and then she gave. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 3 of chapter 16. Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian her maid and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. Normally, it's the father who gives away the bride to the groom. But in this sad story, it's Sarah who's giving Hagar away into marriage. Notice what the husbands in both Genesis 3 and Genesis 16 do. In Genesis 3 verse 17 and in Genesis 16 verse 2, both men, and I quote, listened to the voice of their wife. They wanted a good thing so badly that they're willing to obey God in order to get it. Think about this. Was, was God, was his heart to withhold wisdom from Eve? The book that's in your lap is proof that God is not stingy with His wisdom. He loves revealing His wisdom. In our text, is God committed to giving Abram an offspring? We just saw in Genesis 15, God swears an oath. He walks alone between dead animals and He calls down a curse on Himself if He doesn't keep that promise. It's very helpful here because I think it's hard for us to think about a sin that doesn't fit this pattern. This is the heart of every lie, right? Every time you're tempted to lie, what are you after? I want life to go well for me. I want people to be pleased with me. I want to be safe. I don't want people to be disappointed. And so with a lie, we go around God in order to get those things. Isn't it the same with cheating? Fudging our taxes? Stealing? Pornography? All sex outside of marriage? Drug and alcohol abuse? We have to get this. Everything that is good comes directly from God. And it is wrong to try to get it anywhere else. And as Abram, Sarah, Adam, and Eve remind us, it's not just wrong. It's just dumb. Because it doesn't work anyway. C.S. Lewis expresses this powerfully in a series of, of writings that he did called the Screwtape Letters. And it's, it's kind of odd. I'm going to quote it. But just keep in mind that what we have in the Screwtape Letters is, is this imaginary conversation between an old experienced demon to a younger demon that he is discipling. 
Listen to what the demon says. Never forget, and again, it's a demon talking here, that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, speaking of the Lord. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention. It is not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. The same is true for what Jerry Bridges refers to as respectable sins. Worrying. Discontentment. Pride. Selfishness. Anger, laziness, jealousy, worldliness. Right? Doubt leads to desperation, leads to disobedience, which always leads to disaster. Before we go, I want to dig just a little bit deeper. I want you to notice what the real problem is. The real problem is that Sarah sees what she wants, and then she takes matters into her own hands to make it happen. That's the real problem. Sarah's sin is not ultimately zeal or bossiness or even aiding and abetting adultery. You look at this and you're like, the sin in this text is adultery. There's a sexual sin. That's what we need to root out. We need to notice that the real sin, Sarah's real sin, is self-sufficiency. She trusts herself. She trusts her desires. If I want it, It must be good. Then she trusts her wisdom. And I know how best to get it. And so she takes matters into her own hands. Abram's problem is not ultimately fear and passivity. Or even the actual act of adultery. Abram's problem is self-sufficiency. He thinks he knows what's best. And that he knows how best to get the peace that he desires. Your and my problem. Your kid's problem. Your teenager's problem. Is not Ultimately, lying or lust or pornography or drugs or disrespect or laziness or anger or worry. Our problem is self-sufficiency. Therefore, the real solution is not ultimately better circumstances. Or accountability. Or a system of rewards and penalties that we set up for our kids or for ourselves. That help us create better habits. Which wrongfully handled actually lead to more self-sufficiency. Right? What we need is to admit the obvious. We're not self-sufficient. But what we need to do is admit that we are weak. That we are unable to help ourselves. That we are not wise. That we don't know best. That just because we want it doesn't make it good. And then we need to receive and rest in a Savior. Who provides us with everything that we need. Physically, spiritually, practically, today, tomorrow, and forever. Lord willing, we're going to dig deeper into this next week. But that is how the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 4 applies this text. This text is referenced in Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians chapter 4 verse 23, the Apostle Paul looks at Genesis 16 and says, There is the prime example of someone trying to accomplish good 
quote, according to the flesh. And so with all that in mind, let's think about what Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I am the vine. You're the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to read you a few excerpts from Andrew Murray's sermon, Ye Are the Branches. Here's what he says. Oh, beloved, study that word nothing. Do you know the blessedness of that word nothing? If I am something, then God is not everything. But when I become nothing, God can become all. And the everlasting God in Christ can reveal Himself fully. Oh, become nothing in deep reality. And as a Christian worker, study one thing. To become poorer and lower and more helpless. That Christ may work all in you. Here is your first lesson, he says. Learn to be nothing. Learn to be helpless. The man who's got something is not absolutely dependent. Absolute dependence upon God is the secret of all power and work. The branch has nothing but what it gets from the vine. And you and I have nothing but what we can get from Jesus. And this is gold. Listen to this. We find the Christian life so difficult... Because we seek for God's blessing while we live in our own will. Let me read that again. We find the Christian life so difficult because we seek for God's blessing while we live in our own will. Self-sufficiency is the problem. So what's the goal? Absolute dependence. Absolute surrender. The reality on the ground is, it is impossible for us to trust Him too much. Every person in this room, without exception, is tempted to trust yourself. It comes out in different ways. For some, it's obvious, right? Some God I can't see is not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> if this God wants me to follow Him, He's going to change a whole bunch of stuff about the Old Testament because I'm just really ticked off with Him and He needs to learn some holy behavior from me. It's obvious. Others of us would never say that. But when the chips are down and we think we know what ought to happen, we will control or manipulate or stretch the truth or steal or pout or nag or yell or cry or play the victim or whatever it takes to make happen what we think ought to happen. It's still self-trust. For others, it's even less obvious. Oh, you don't understand. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. I believe in the Lord. But your prayer life shows it's not true. I trust the Lord. But the fact that your Bible's so dusty 
It just shows it's not true. In others, it's even, it's even more hidden. You read your Bible faithfully. You pray faithfully. You come to church faithfully. You're in accountability. You can do all that. And still be self-sufficient. You know how you can tell? You can tell it when you have these thoughts that you're better than those who don't do those things. You're proud of your commitments and diligence and goodness. You say it like that, it's silly, isn't it? Isn't it silly for the people of God who believe on paper that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for us to be proud? Our pride and our judgmentalism shows that the gospel of grace has territory yet to conquer in our hearts. Still other self-sufficiency is exposed by your guilty conscience over sin that you've confessed and supposedly trusted Jesus to forgive. And so your heart is saying things like this. I'm so disappointed with myself. It's all the sin of self-sufficiency. Here's the good news. There's a Savior there is a Savior who walked up a hill called Golgotha alone. Who took the full wrath of God upon Himself alone. All by Himself. No, no help from us. He was buried in a borrowed tomb all alone. And then the Bible says, by His own authority, He walked out of the tomb. Guess what He wants us to do? He wants us to stop working and trust Him. He wants us to stop working. And I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the religious work and also all the work that we do to try to make our life go the way we want it to go. To stop working and to trust Him. To, to say with the Apostle Paul every day and in every circumstance, I have been crucified with Christ. This is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, so you think about this. This is a great question for you to ask yourself and for us to ask each other. How is the sin of self-sufficiency Operating in your life right now. How are you being tempted? With what's going on in your life. How are you being tempted. To be self-sufficient. Asking to reveal it. Hand it over. Trust. Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be kind to work in our hearts where we willingly right now expose the wound to you. Father, would you root out 
not just lies and worry and pride and lust. Father, would you root out self-sufficiency? Give us grace, even right now, to repent of trusting ourselves, to repent of being wise in our own eyes, and to trust in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.